welcome to another episode of Chart of Fortune, the astrology podcast where I look at the moments and things that made pop culture. I'm your host, Elise Blaylock, and I'm coming to you post-first attempt of coup. Today's episode will not feature the events of Wednesday, January 6th. Last week's episode was recorded and posted late Tuesday night, that's typically how I do this, and it didn't mention the results of the Georgia special election or the attempted coup at our nation's capital. I want to be clear that I didn't mention those events not because I don't want to talk about them or think it's inappropriate to talk about them. They just simply hadn't happened yet. It might be clear if you listen to this podcast or if you know me personally, I'm thrilled that John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock were elected. You might also note or share my feelings that white supremacists who bo- broke into the Capitol, and a huge thanks to Capitol Police who of course let them in, uh, are treasonous violent criminals who are egged on by treasonous criminals who happen to be Republican senators and the current president of the United States. There are a lot of emotions to process, but I personally want to say I do not condone the actions that transpired. Rare in life is it so clear, right and wrong, uh, that's put in front of us. I know that we can know something is wrong before we know how to feel about it. I don't even know how to start naming what I feel about what happened. I don't know that there are words to describe all of the emotions that are in my heart. I personally have decided to unfollow accounts that did not choose to acknowledge the coup because anyone with a social media platform needs to condemn these actions. I'm not looking for some Instagram influencer to tell me how to feel about these events or offer some articulate breakdown of where we go from here and the damage that was done to our democracy. I'm just expecting the same people who posted blank black boxes thinking they were supporting Black Lives Matter to write a quick little note saying, I don't agree with this. This is wrong. Please, dear listener, I hope that you are doing what you need to do to navigate this. I will continue to use this platform to denounce hate and also terrible fashion choices. I know there are a lot of people who don't process their fear and pain by making inappropriate jokes. And if that's not you, I want to be clear. I'm not trying to minimize the suffering, chaos, and violence that occurred. It's just that I've watched way too much of Bravo's flipping out at a formative age, and I now believe that life's problems can be solved by a macabre sense of humor and lunch from El Pollo Loco. Jeff Lewis is just one Pokemon evolution ahead of me when it comes to alienating everyone around him. But I'm a white millennial woman with an astrology podcast, so you know your girl is gaining ground. He and I are just two chapstick-loving, coffee-chugging, miserable souls who love dogs and salty one-liners. As with so many moments in my life, when things are darkest, the magical pop culture fairy godmother, aka the internet, arrived just in the nick of time. Like Disney's Cinderella, she sees me in ripped and stained clothing, hair a mess, and waves her magic wand. I feel transformed, my dark brown roots less visible, my stained sweatpants transformed into well-fitting yoga pants, dry shampoo, and some long-forgotten bath and bodywork spray sprinkled upon me like the fairy dust of a more emotionally responsible adult. She embraces me tightly, then recoils ever so slightly at the scent of my natural deodorant, just completely failing me. But you guys, it saves wild animals. I feel conflicted. With her hands on my shoulders, she looks me in the eyes and said, you have been given a tremendous gift today. The heavens have bestowed upon you and all germ swirlers, a precious token of our love. You must not squander this effervescent celebrity gossip I have given you. My sweet summer child. You must refocus your efforts onto this topic, and for the love of God and all that is holy, please shower. Your dog, Hazel, is not snuggling you. She is trying to roll in your disgusting filth as she would a fish carcass or another animal's excrement. 
You need to clean it up, sister. We're living through the apocalypse, not a Michael Bay movie. With a flash of blue light and the chorus of Britney Spears, you better work, bitch. Briefly playing, the magical fairy is gone. The scent of Bath and Body Works sweet tea lingers in the air. Footprints of light blue Uggs leading toward the door. I look around, first down, at my matching socks. Then my eyes dart around the room. They settle on my hands. In them is my phone. Screen wiped down, sanitized, open to Instagram. And just like that, this week's topic emerged. I had to wonder, how did I get so lucky that a Sex in the City reboot would be announced just when I needed fluffy entertainment news the most? To be honest, I had a very different episode planned for this week. It will eventually air. It's a two-part series, but it definitely requires an intellectual stimulation and capability that I'm not capable of. Today's topic is the first of a two-part series detailing Sex and the City, the show, the subsequent movies, and of course, Chart of Fortune, Salty Sunshine Astrology. Sex and the City is first and foremost a book by author Candace Bushnell. It details the lives of herself and her friends living in New York City. It was published in 1997 and was based off of her column at the New York Post Observer. The Observer ceased publication in 2016. Now, if your thing is canceled television shows, then you might also recognize Candace Bushnell from the short-lived Carrie Diaries and Lipstick Jungle series. The producer of Sex and the City, Darren Starr, loved the book and decided he would write a pilot to make the book into a show. He felt confident that the show would be a hit, maybe because he has all the confidence of a white dude and a Leo son, but likely because he produced Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place. Now, if your thing is not canceled television shows, you might also recognize him as the producer of Younger and Emily in Paris. The script is okayed, HBO is signed on, Darren reaches out to Sarah Jessica Parker, who he wrote the part of Carrie Bradshaw for. And she's tepid. Like, really tepid. Like how tepid we all were when Carrie meets up with Aiden in Dubai. Like, should this be happening? Is this really going to work out? She apparently was really flattered, but after shooting the pilot, she admitted she hated the clothes, she hated the feel, and she felt like she signed on to make something that would signal the end of her career. She even offered to make several movies with HBO for no pay, just to get out of the series. And before you get upset, have you, like, seen the pilot episode recently? It took a really... I mean, have you taken a really long, good look at television from 1998? If you have not seen the show in a while, you could be forgiven for forgetting how much people talk to the camera in the first episode and Miranda's short-lived flame skipper, who looks like a cross between ugly Tom Hanks and Art Garfunkel. I'm sorry, Tom. You're my favorite celebrity to get COVID. I, I just never want to travel with you. Ever, 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 forever. But I do love you. The pilot is just... Okay, I just, I hate it. I just hate it. SJP and I don't agree on everything. The woman was, of course, the new fling in the first Wives Club movie, and I'm still working on how I feel about that. Good morning to Muhammad and everyone who enjoys that movie. But we share a mutual liking of JFK Jr., we have spring birthdays, and we both thought that pilot was just a little off. The episode opens on Carrie telling this really sad story about a woman who falls in love and ends up brokenhearted, but it's not her or any of her friends because the woman in question is British. Now, I think you can make the argument that it's actually the mom from Lindsay Lohan's Parent Trap, but I digress. We never meet this woman in the show. We never know if it's a real story or if Carrie's just wasting time with a dude because sometimes Carrie can be the worst. 
Also, the late 1990s fashion in this particular episode just doesn't work for me. Yeah, there is this cherry red slip dress, but just like watching five straight seasons of Are You the One, it leaves me cold. I know I should find it joyful, but I just can't enjoy it. When I've rewatched Sex and the City many times, especially when it was randomly on E! during the middle of the day, I never rewatched those first three episodes. To begin with, I just don't buy that Carrie and Skipper are really friends, and I don't see how Miranda and Skipper were ever dating. The show does eventually jettison Skipper, who is a video editor, and we can all move on with our slightly problematic white woman-only show. I guess, in a brief homage to Skipper, website creator, hopeless water sign, man, and forever romantic, you would have lasted about five minutes before Miranda devoured you with a taste of a canapé at one of Charlotte's gallery exhibitions. You don't need me to tell you that the show was revolutionary when it aired. In 1998, there had been no popular show about groups of adult female friends and no show centering on the sexual experiences of adult women. I think you can make the argument that shows like Girlfriends, Girls, maybe Entourage and Insecure, which all started years after Sex and the City premiered, get some of their cues about portraying the intricacies of adult friendship and romantic connections from this show. In some ways, Sex and the City being the first show about these topics means that it doesn't always hold up with a more modern audience. The show is comprised of only white women, and they are all thin, wealthy, cisgender, and arguably heterosexual. The homosexual characters in the plotline are relegated to simplistic sidekick characters, and I want you to keep your ire and confusion for the Stanford-Anthony relationship and connection and marriage and put it in a little box because we are going to get there, but not right now. We... We are going to mention, though, that the show does deal with losing a parent, work-life balance, being a parent, menopause, adoption, divorce, heartbreak, illness. And for those topics to be presented in a real and honest way is commendable. It might also be interesting to note that Sex and City is a real turning point and a change for HBO. You might not know this, but HBO's origins are pretty humble. They were formed in 1972 as an underground cable alternative in New York City, and throughout the 1970s and 80s, it kind of morphed into a pseudo-pay-per-view boxing destination television show. But by 1990, HBO wanted to create more classic television programming. So, namely, they wanted scripted shows. They wanted to differentiate themselves, though, from basic cable by focusing on more intellectual TV shows. So, like PBS, but just raunchy or violent. HBO found success with The Larry Sanders Show, which aired in 1992, and then Oz, a gritty prison drama, which aired in 1997. But, as you can guess, none of their early programming was geared toward women, and Sex and the City was an opportunity to break into those key female demographics. And into this story, the premiere of Sex and the City. We know that the book was published in 1997, and I know that the pilot was shot sometime during the month of June 1997. But for the birth chart, I'm going to use the air date of the pilot episode, which is June 6, 1998, at exactly 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and I'm using New York City as the birth city. I was able to find a poster with the exact air time from Google, so that means we have a full birth chart, and that gives us our rising and our houses, which, of course, we love. Sex and the City is a Gemini Sun, Sagittarius Rising, Scorpio Moon. And I have to say, I, I like the big three. I think they really fit. The chart has a rising at 24 degrees of Sagittarius, and a Sag rising is someone who can tell it like it is. I'm picturing all of Samantha's punchy one-liners and curt observations about life and love, or Miranda's no-frills, all-fact advice. 
If you want an honest opinion, ask a Sagittarius. But Sag risings also typically embody that Jupiter-ruled excitement for the future and optimism about life in general. And they despise being independent. I'm instantly thinking of how each woman struggles to define and live out her ideal embodiment of independence. Like Carrie needing to learn financial independence, though I think you can argue she never really does. Or Charlotte's separating from Trey and then learning to be an independent person. Or Miranda and Samantha learning that you can be a completely self-sufficient and independent bad bitch and still be in a relationship. If you use whole sign houses, or you just know that Chart of Fortune uses whole sign houses, then your ascendant will always be in opposition to the sign of your seventh house ruler, known as your descendant. In this case, it means that the show's natal sun, which is in 16 degrees of Gemini, is the ruler of the seventh house, which is the house of relationships implying that a large portion of the show's existence is focusing on that topic. And you don't need me to tell you that it does, from business relationships, romantic relationships, friendships, and family relationships are all covered throughout the series. I also think that seeing the sun in the seventh house could signify that the relationship we have with ourselves is critical. How the characters learn and evolve is something that the show really focuses on, and I think that could be what's being symbolized here. The Gemini energy is about having fun, having a smart remark, learning, trying new things. The show loves to show us tons of spots in New York City, and we really get to see the character of New York City as a part of the show. Uh, it's constantly moving, and it has that kind of frenetic energy. At, at its core, it's playful, relational. It loves a ridiculous subplot or gag. There, of course, is a ridiculous fart subplot in the first season. There is the uh, often-mentioned over-the-top bag party where kind of subplot is that one of the character's friends has these terrible bags that she makes and no one can tell her how bad they are. And finally, our main character, Carrie Bradshaw, is a writer, which is closely associated with the sign of Gemini. She's paid to communicate her thoughts and experiences, so Mercury, the sign that, or the planet that rules Gemini, with a larger audience. Finally, the moon symbolizes our emotional needs and dreams, and in general, if you work with modern astrology, it often delves into our subconscious self. A Scorpio moon is, well, intense, but the show does talk about intense subjects, infertility, death, cancer, divorce, and those are at the emotional heart of the plot. Not to mention, Sagittarius and Geminis are more thinkers and feelers. We need this moon in a water and intuitive placement to give the show a deep emotional core. We come to believe at the end of the series that these four women are likely each other's soulmates instead of their chosen partners. And the nature of Scorpio itself, a water sign that is ruled by either hot-headed Mars if you work with ancient astrology, or mysterious and powerful Pluto if you work with modern, this isn't some light and love, are you sure make a cake not out of rainbow and smile vibes. The lesson for Scorpio Moon is to feel creative. Don't shut down. Don't make a calculated plan. Be here now. In being with our feelings, no matter how hard, we grow and we face the uncomfortable realities they present. For example, how frustrated we all were when Carrie cheated on Aiden with Vic. Did she confront the issues in her relationship with her fiancé? No. She struggled to tell him that she hated the ring he bought. She lied about smoking and having sex with her ex-boyfriend. Carrie did not lean into the power of the Scorpio moon, which teaches us that being vulnerable is really being powerful. The other natal placement I want to reference is Saturn in 29 degrees of Aries, which rules the fifth house in this birth chart. The show has sex in its name, so I have to bring up the fifth house, which rules sex, creativity, children, and gambling. 
quick refresher, when we flip our planet in a chart, it will be between 0 and 29 degrees. Usually we'd say like 1 through 30, but we use 0 through 29 in astrology. So 29 degrees is the final degree of a sign, and it's also known as the anoretic degree. You might remember the anoretic degree from other episodes and from last Wednesday when Mars was in 29 degrees of Aries. But let's be clear, Saturn and Mars mo might be both considered malefic planets in ancient astrology, but they do bad a little differently. Mars is associated with violence, conflict, war, but Saturn is about repression and roadblocks. Saturn in the anoretic degree is still giving us that tension. Seeing this placement actually made me think of kind of a random visualization that might help. Um, a couple years ago, my husband had a different job, and he worked south of downtown Seattle. And what was nice about his job is he could park there for free, and he also could get to the freeway in like 10 minutes or less most of the time. But other times, the train full of parkers, so like this giant long train, would block the roadway. It was the only way to get on the freeway was through that road, unless you had to take a really long turnabout thing. So it was actually just faster to wait for the bus. Sometimes. I mean, it could easily take 30 minutes or more to get less than two, the two miles from the office to the freeway ramp. And Saturn in that anoretic degree is about wanting to move from the final degrees of Aries to the sign of Taurus. But it's sitting there waiting for the train to get out of the way. It's moving out of the masculine Martian-ruled Aries and into the sign of Taurus, which is ruled by Venus, and I think this is about how the show handled the existing dialogue and cultural norms about sex. It's changing how sex is portrayed in the media, and the fact that Taurus is Venusian and arguably connected to female archetypes is, seems to be no accident to me. It's worth noting that two days after the show aired, Saturn moves into the sign of Taurus, and it remains there uh, through the rest of the season. The first season introduces us to our four leading ladies, Carrie Bradshaw, Charlotte York, Samantha Jones, and Miranda Hobbs, as well as notable recurring characters like Sandra Blatch and Mr. Big, the latter of which is the only character besides the core four to appear on the series premiere and finale. Maybe it's the Gemini Sun, Mercury, and Mars conjunction, but the first season doesn't feel super cohesive. It bounces around. We do learn a lot about the main characters. We watch them meet friends from college and discover more about their jobs and romantic interests. And we do see a brief relationship between Carrie and Big, which kind of sets us up for the rest of the show. But the series really hasn't found its footing yet. Just like a toy that hasn't evolved, we see the plot jumping to and fro, showing the passage of time through random hookups, which later becomes a hallmark of the show. But in this season, they don't give us a lot of larger, cohesive storylines or themes that center each episode. This, of course, excludes episode 8, which focuses solely on threesomes, who wants them, who's had them, and who's doing the 1998 version of Swiping Left. Since the first three seasons air so close in time to one another, and they all begin in the first week of June, I'm often to look at some of the planetary transits that happen during this time. The transits, so planets moving in and out of signs or being uh, retrograde, gives us information um, that kind of matches the themes of the episode, I think, in a more cohesive way. Like, spooky sometimes. Darren and Star, are you into astrology? I mentioned that in the show's birth chart, Saturn is in the final degree of Aries, and so it's in the fifth house of the birth chart. It moved into the sign of Taurus days after the first episode aired, and it stayed in Taurus for all but three episodes of the final season. Saturn does retrograde during the final episodes of season one, in which themes about Saturn in the fifth house are revisited. 
The retrograde officially begins on August 15, 1998, but it's usually being felt about a week beforehand. Any retrograde period asks us to reflect, revisit, and consider the past themes in that sign and planet. And this particular Saturn retrograde centers around the final three episodes of season three. In the first of these episodes, the core four attend a baby shower for a friend, and those fifth house themes of having a baby, wanting to have a baby, are paired with Saturnian themes of delays and roadblocks. Carrie literally worries that her period is late, so a delay, and that she might be pregnant. While Charlotte worries that not being married is delaying and maybe even preventing her from ever having children. The next episode centers around delays or roadblocks with sex, with Miranda realizing she hasn't had sex in months, and Carrie feels like her sex life with Big is slowing way down. The season's finale tips its toe into another fifth house topic of creativity when Miranda starts dating a playwright and then experiences a Saturnian fifth house moment when he doesn't want to have sex with her. Season two aired one year to the date of the premiere, June 6, 1999. And through the whole second season, Saturn is still in Taurus and activating the natal chart's sixth house, which rules daily routines, jobs, pets. And by pets, I'm talking about domestic small animals like dogs, cats, birds, fish, guinea pigs, etc. If you're thinking about large animals, that is something that is a 12th house. The sixth house also rules health. Anytime Saturn changes signs, it's going to highlight whatever themes and whatever house that sign rules in your chart. So we're seeing the movement from the 5th house to the 6th. We see this play out quite literally in the season with episode 2 featuring Charlotte trying to unsuccessfully adopt a dog. Episode 4 shows Carrie get a promotional career opportunity that goes awry. She lands the cover of New York Magazine, but it's a terrible photo. A reoccurring theme of the second season is also these ancillary plot points that involve coworkers, staff, and employee of the main, employees of the main characters, which is very 6th house. Uh, in chronological order through the season, Samantha, Samantha briefly dates her gym instructor, Miranda sets up her interior decorator, and inevitably causes this weird courtship relationship, and Samantha feuds with the housekeeper of a man she is dating. In all of these situations, we see these Saturnian roadblocks with nothing going according to plan. Samantha's flirtation with her gym instructor ends up with her being branded. Miranda is dismayed that the interior designer she hired and then set up on this long-distance love connection is getting married shortly and then won't be able to help her with redesigning her apartment. Samantha has to end the relationship with the wealthy real estate investor when it's clear that his house manager will do everything in her power to make this relationship fail. In 1999, which is when the second season aired, we also see a Venus retrograde when, on July 30th, 1999, Venus moves back into the sign of Virgo until August 15th. In the show's birth chart, Virgo rules the 10th house of career, public persona, image, power, and achievement. And these themes are present in episodes 9 through 11 of the season, which coincides with that same timeline. Episode 9 focuses on Miranda and Steve's blossoming relationship, but mentions that their work schedules, so 6th house, 10th house, are completely at odds with one another. Wealth and power take on a central role in episode 10 when Big and Carrie attend an Upper East Side party that's thrown by Big's friends, and Carrie feels really turned off by the snootiness and kind of the social climbing vibes, but Big remains unaffected. Finally, the 10th house uh, themes of career and image, that perception, are challenged when Charlotte goes on uh, what she doesn't know is a date with a pastry chef. She thinks he's gay, but he's actually straight and interested in her. 
in all of these episodes, we're seeing that the values that we have are either being asked to be reconsidered and changed or that they're in direct opposition with others. Venus, as you might remember from fifth grade science class, is the second planet from the sun, and as a result, it moves through the signs of the zodiac pretty quickly. This retrograde period sees Venus leave the early degrees of Virgo, and then it actually continues retrograding into the sign of Leo, and that happens from August 16th through September 11th, 1999. And that means that Venus's highlighting is now the ninth house, which is philosophy, higher education, long-distance travel. So it shouldn't be a surprise that episode 12, which aired on August 22nd, involves Mr. Big telling Carrie that he is going to move for about seven months to Paris. The season finale ends on the season finale airs on October 3rd, 1999, and the moon is in Cancer, highlighting the show's natal eighth chart. Natal chart's eighth house of beginnings and endings. The moon is particularly powerful. It's in its home sign of Cancer, and it's being paired with the eighth house, which has an intense reputation, but really is focusing on beginnings and endings. It really fits how emotionally intense the season finale is. Carrie and Miranda are both going through recent breakups, and they're not taking them well. Carrie continues to have an illicit affair with her ex, Mr. Big, even when he, she finds out that he's seeing someone younger. She gets invited to their engagement party, and at that point, she's totally gutted because she realizes that Mr. Big is moving to a new chapter of his life, and their relationship is likely over forever. Miranda, after a recent breakup with Steve, ends up sleeping with him and kind of blurring those lines and forces herself to decide if they should reconcile or break up. Should she stay? Should she go? Charlotte also confronts a horse to overcome her uh, previous fears that she had. Now, season three airs on June 4th, the year 2000, and for the third time in a row, we are again in Gemini season. Real talk, season three is a tough one. I think part of this is because season two ended with all of these main characters being forced to face some tough realities, except for Samantha, because she just dumps some random dude that is never seen again. I hope he's white. But the other part of this heaviness involves a little planet I like to call Saturn. That's right, back to our crotchety, yells at kids for being on his lawn, friend Saturn. The first part of season three is wrapping up those Saturn and Taurus themes. You know, being responsible around those sixth house themes of employee, home, routine, work. Miranda manages to get LASIK surgery, hires a housekeeper, makes more time in her routine to be with Steve, and deals with an STD diagnosis. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. Regardless of when Miranda's birthday on the show is, can we all just agree that she is totally an Earth sign? Similarly, Samantha navigates her health crisis, deals with her younger assistant, and Charlotte takes a work opportunity to be part of her exhibit, part of an exhibit at her gallery. Both Charlotte and Samantha also focus on a spa day for some health benefits with very mixed results. Carrie, meanwhile, is reeling from the news that Big will be marrying Natasha, and she runs headlong from the day-to-day routine that Saturn and Taurus and the Sixth House are really into. She starts smoking more than she had in the past, and she ends up dating a guy who belittles her career because he believes her sex com will prevent him from getting elected to public office. Carrie then meets and starts dating Aiden, who 100% is totally a Taurus sign to me. He's stable and admittedly stubborn, but his need for routine and boundaries don't help Carrie form her own healthy patterns. They cause her to worry about what to do in a functional relationship, and she doesn't feel secure and protected. She feels stifled. A little more than midway through the third season, Saturn decides to leave Taurus and enter into Gemini. 
We see it enter Gemini on August 9th, 2000, and this coincides, you know, with activating Taurus, which was the sixth house, into Gemini, which, as we know, is the seventh house of relationships. So all those themes are coming up with Saturn changing signs. Saturn is, of course, in the same house as the sun, as the show's sun, which is the planet of self, Mercury, the planet of communication and thought, and Mars, the planet of conflict, action, and sex. Saturn making conjunction with any one of these planets would be tough. It would suck, and she would totally feel it. But to have Saturn moving through the planets that are so closely connected with self all at the same time, it's really yikes. Saturn is known to cause depressions of periods of depressive thoughts or feelings. We're not talking about clinical depression. We're talking about depressive feelings and emotions, and this is really tough. It shouldn't come as a surprise, then, that the season in a way, feels like a weird emotional regression. Not with clothing or themes, but it feels like many of the plot lines are about facing obstacles with identity, of thought and actions, and then instead of choosing growth, choosing to just go back into the bad habits that don't serve us. When people say Carrie is the worst, I think season three is why. Carrie, of course, is heartbroken, and anyone in her position would be, but she's not choosing to lean into the Saturn change that's being asked of her. The universe offers her a healthy, supportive relationship with Aiden that obviously is far from perfect. But she decides, instead of trying to make things work with Aiden or letting him go, she's going to have an affair with Big and continue dating Aiden. She spends a good portion of the show waffling between coming clean with Aiden about the affair and her abortion and ending things or digging herself further and further into a hole where she alienates herself, her friends, and honestly both guys. Charlotte, who is typically capable and confident, is starting to feel this tremendous pressure, somewhat self-inflicted, about finding a man to marry and have children with. She does fall head and over heels with Trey, but it's clear to the audience that this relationship is moving very quickly and that that could be problematic. For example, they go on one date, fall in love, negotiate a prenup, get married, battle infertility issues, and decide to separate in nine episodes, or half of season three. Charlotte is consumed by the thoughts of what her life should be like. She should have a loving partner, a beautiful society page wedding, a stunning pre-war apartment, a baby. But in all of that, she doesn't consider what her life would look like with those things and Trey and his overbearing mother, Buffy. She meets Trey while Saturn is still in Taurus, and he gives her those dependable and kind Taurian vibes. But she doesn't ask enough tough questions about who Trey is and who she really is, And that will spell disaster when Saturn is asking you to do the internal work with yourself and figure out who you are and who you are in relationships and what you need. To make matters worse? Yeah, hang on, it gets worse. Finally, Jupiter is in retrograde in the sun sign in Gemini, and it is close enough to form close conjunctions with the natal charts Sun, Mercury, and Mars. This is all going down again in the seventh house, and it is happening from September 29th through the end of the year 2000, the show typically ends in October, um, so this is going to be present for a lot of these episodes. Basically, Jupiter retrograde with, like, touching Sun, Mercury, Mars, it's, who the hell are we? What the hell are we thinking? And what the hell are we doing? And this is all happening, you know, in the relationship with self, with our business partners, with our romantic connections. It's really intense. There are themes of considering old identities, old patterns, old thought patterns, old patterns of behavior, and these are going to be explored in the final four episodes of season three. 
Alex Lee. In episode 15, Miranda's sense of self is challenged and she gets braces and has to be that lady who's an adult with braces. And Charlotte learns that her thoughts that Trey is struggling with his infertility are incorrect because she catches him masturbating. The next episode has Carrie question herself and her dating methods, her thought processes, and Mars her actions around sex when her learning annex, cla- learning annex class totally bombs. Charlotte has some Martian themes by fighting with Trey and Samantha about her sex life. And that Charlotte managing to ba- combine fucking and fighting so efficient. Episode 17 has Carrie reaching out to Natasha, Big's wife, with the idea that she's going to clear the air. But a uh, clear Jupiter Mercury retro meetup, this is not going to go well. Charlotte's identity as a married woman ends when she and Trey decide to separate. Miranda dates a hot cop, and then she starts dating who she is, like doubts who she is, and, and worries she's not enough. The season finale finds Carrie and Big meeting now that his marriage is over. Charlotte moves back into her old apartment, and Samantha is having to reconsider her feud with transsexual sex workers that work outside of her apartment. I hope you'll join me next week as we discuss the birth chart of the United States presidential inauguration. Just like Joe Biden's, Donald Trump will not be joining me. The following week, we'll revisit the last three seasons of Sex and the City and the two films following the show's finale. I'll also break down the birthdays of the main characters and what we can expect from the miniseries that will start filming in spring of this year. I just want to say I really hate it when podcasts do not air sequential series episodes back to back. And I know I'm doing that now. I don't think that this will be a regular thing, and I'm sorry if this is giving you the same feelings as when Carrie got broken up with post-event. I'm sorry. I can't. Don't hate me. So whether you're Team Aiden or Team Big, please remember that everyone and everything has a birth chart, but yours is a chart of fortune. Thank you for listening to Charts of Fortune. Questions, comments, concerns, and ideas for show episodes can be sent to my email or Instagram, both of which are linked in the show notes. If you like Chart of Fortune, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review. It helps other fabulous people find this podcast, and it helps out this indie pod. Chart of Fortune is researched, recorded, and edited by me, Elise Blaylock. Special thanks to my producer, Hazel, who's also my dog. Until next time, bye!